This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Steve Baugh is professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 1983. When he enrolled as a Master of Divinity student in 1982, the campus was located in San Marcos, California, in an office building just off Highway 78. We didn't move to our current campus at 1725 Bear Valley Parkway in Escondido until January of 1984. Back then, the campus was one building. Now... We have something like 11 buildings on campus, including the Westminster Village. He earned a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Oregon in Journalism and another BA in Classics. He earned his Ph.D. in Ancient History from the University of California, Irvine. He's author of two widely used Greek grammars, a marvelous commentary on Ephesians, highly recommended. Uh, You should listen to the Office Hours episode where we discussed that. You can find that at wscal.edu slash office hours. And most recently, he published Majesty on High, an introduction to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Again, you'll want to hear the Office Hours episode where we discussed that. And more importantly, you will want to get a copy of that volume. Both of those volumes, all of them, in fact, are available through the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. In fact, that last volume, Majesty on High, has been recently translated into Korean, which translation was arranged by one of our graduates, Jung-Koo John, and it's available from CDC Publishers in South Korea. We're talking with Dr. Baugh today because he is retiring, and we're going to be looking back at his career and talking about his future. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Well, you've been here almost from the very beginning of the seminary, so you are, in some ways, a walking embodiment of Westminster Seminary, California. You've got your initial theological training here, and you've been teaching here basically nonstop since almost the beginning. Yes, I was the new kid. (laughs) And now? And now I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You still seem like a kid to me, so... That's what Godfrey tells me. (laughs) Steve and I have been dear friends since he took me under his wing in the fall, I think, of 1984. So a long time. Our kids grew up together, and we've been teaching together for 23 years. Thanksgiving and Christmas, Mm -hmm. we've shared them. Even an occasional uh, trip to the Midwest. Uh, We we vacationed together up in Lincoln City, Oregon. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, that was fun. Our families are geographically not right next to each other, but we've We've always been very close. Well, before we talk about your past and your future, let's talk about your present. What are you working on right now? Because I know you, you're always working on something. So tell us about what that is. Because sometimes when you, when you get to talking about retirement, it makes people think, well, you know, he's not going to do anything or he's ending his active life. I know that's not true of you. Well, unfortunately, the last two days I've been looking into Medicare. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it has been challenging because i basically ignored all that stuff and appreciated the seminary's provision of health care, but now I have to do it myself. It's complicated. But I have a couple of things in mind, short-term, little things. I'm doing a little project on a Greek grammatical structure in First John 2.8 that I wrote about many years ago, but now I'm elaborating on it, finding more evidence that I was actually right way back when. And it's interestingly, utilizing my classic stuff because I carried that over into New Testament studies, and I think it's been very helpful. 
But my main work, which is I'm actually getting closer to putting a proposal together for a publisher. It's called the literary composition of the book of Hebrews. So looking at all the style and compositional elements in the book of Hebrews, it'll be an academic book. It'll be somewhat technical, but hopefully still be interesting. At least it is to me. I've worked on it for many years and I'm still eager to get it written. I feel like I'm pregnant with it. <laughs> and I have to I have to birth this thing. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you work on something and eventually, you know, you realize this thing needs to come to fruition. I yeah. need to write this up. That's what I really plan to turn my attention to because it'll be very demanding. There's a lot of language work. You know, you have to work in a lot of different languages and it just takes a lot of concentration. And what I'm teaching, I just can't attend to it in the same way because I get distracted by all the fun of teaching because I'm teaching a lot of fun stuff and the students are great. I enjoy interacting with them, but it keeps me from that, you know, 10 hour a day concentrated work that will happen as soon as I retire. You know, retire to me, I never thought I would retire. I felt like that wasn't a good idea. I'm the Lord's servant and I'm not going to stop being his servant. But I look at it as a job change. So as a seminary professor, we basically have three main duties. So our primary duty is to the students here to teach and to foster personal relations with them and help them personally as we can and meet with them and all that. Really been a delight over the years with the quality of students we have. Then we minister in the churches. So we do preaching, we do conferences, we do other things in the churches. And then the third aspect is research and writing, which, you know, can be popular or academic. And so we basically have three jobs. I'm just going to turn my attention to the third job. That's what I hope to do with the rest of my life, because I feel like I'm finally at the place where I know something. <laughs> I know enough <laughs> I can write something at least on this and then hopefully turn to other things. I don't know all the things that may come out after that. And I'm sure, uh, in fact, I know for a fact that the seminary will continue to make use of you. You'll be teaching here on an occasional basis, and I'm sure you'll be lecturing occasionally in classes, a January class probably. As long as you're within arm's reach, hard to imagine that we won't be making use of you. And the churches will be making use of you as well, right? They know how to contact you. Like a used you. wash rag, making <laughs> use of Ba. Let's make use of Ba. He's around. We can't find anybody interesting, but we'll make use of Ba. Well, He's I, easy. <laughs> I know that you are beloved. Uh, I've talked to people who've been to church conferences that you have done, and it's been very edifying. So if the listener is looking for a conference speaker. I never get repeat invitations, though. Oh, <laughs> we've heard from him. <laughs> well, that's because you give people enough to chew on. That It takes a while. I think you're probably being too modest. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So just in the remarks you made, you raised a whole bunch of places that we could explore. But I want to back up to the beginning of your uh, career, and that is your initial interest in Greek. And one of the things about which you have been passionate is the importance of learning Greek, uh, that the students should learn Greek, not just to get through seminary, but as a beginning of a lifelong career pattern, habit of being a learner of Greek and a reader of the Greek New Testament. How did you get started? Well, if I could just comment on that first, what you just said. I thought that was eloquently put, and it's very important at our school. This is the whole specialist in the Bible vision that we inherited 
as this campus was started and that I experienced from my professors here. And then I've tried to do that my whole career, to do everything I can to help students develop as experts in the scripture so that they can do biblical interpretation themselves more effectively and more successfully. Everything is shaped around that for me. So I came into all this through God's good sense of humor. Our Lord just looked down from heaven and he said, who can we choose whom no one would expect this to happen? <laughs> and A farm kid from McMinnville, yeah, Oregon. It's seems, absolutely true. Seems like who, an unlikely New Testament prop. It's true. It's absolutely true. Who had not one coherent thought after the other growing up, I think. Yeah, I was converted while finishing military service, and I— Thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you. So I got out and uh, went back to college. I had a year before I enlisted. So I went back as a sophomore. The chaplain on my ship had a, uh, a UBS, United Bible Society, Greek New Testament, and he showed it to me interestingly. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, that'd be cool to read that, you know, read the New Testament in Greek. Who wouldn't want to do that? So when I went back to college, I had to have a foreign language for my major. And I thought, well, I'll take Greek. I mean, then I can read the New Testament. And that's when it all started. So my sophomore year of college, I took classical Greek at the university and it was really, really hard for me. You know, I, I had a fair education growing up, but I didn't pay that much attention. I wanted to play football. I wanted to, who knows what. That sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah, who knows what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an electrical engineer at one point. I don't know. I'm actually surprised I didn't do that. But anyway, I kind of stumbled into the Greek and I started with a class of 25 beginning Greek, and ended with three by the end of the year. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like the classics people cared, you know. Their job seemed to be to weed out people. They got paid whether they were teaching I 25 know. or teaching three. It's so. true. And, you know, we don't feel that way. You know, we want everybody to succeed. And so we thankfully have a little more better success rate. And that's important, too. One of the reasons why I wanted you to tell that story, and I don't want to cut you off, I want to hear more, but the listener needs to know that we weren't born scholars. The Lord and His providence helped us become scholars, and we were just like you. And, uh, you know, the Lord gave us these interests and enabled us to do these things, and we're committed to taking people by the hand and leading them through the same process that we went through so that our students really do learn the languages. Right? They don't come out completely finished products, but we set them on a path to being able to continue to learn and use these things. And um, the Lord uses our experiences to help us help students. I agree with that exactly. I think that's very well put. And it's really important for our future students to realize that we sympathize. Now, I tell the students this periodically, so I'm sorry if I repeat it, but... No, go ahead. When I enlisted in the service and I was in boot camp, I had wanted to work in electronics, but I failed the color exam. So I have a slight color weakness and they wouldn't let me do electronics, so there goes electrical engineer. You do need to be able to tell the red wires from the green wires. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, having ships blow up in the night is probably not a good idea because some Yahoo mixed up the different colored resistors. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, it's probably wise, but then I wanted to be a translator. And uh, this is Cold War, so you would imagine what language I would learn. Das Yeah, they're very good. That was uh, 
you know, 007 kind of stuff, really cool in my mind. But I failed the language aptitude exam. I have an official government certification <laughs> that I have no ability to learn a foreign language. So again, listener, take heart, <laughs> right? He's only been teaching Greek uh, for decades, and he reads Latin, reads German. So come on. No, but the government is certified. I can't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, raises questions about the whole notion of government. Governmental infallibility. Well, what happened is I took Greek in college, and I just thought, you know, this is really tough for me, but I want it. My parents had built into me growing up that you just don't quit. You know, if something's tough, you just keep doing it until you succeed. I mean, that was— That's so important in learning oh, a language. It really is. I don't know if I've said this before on Office Hours, but I was 250th out of 500 in my class in high school. So I am the quintessence of mediocrity, <laughs> right? And— uh, and so the languages I've learned, it's not because I'm clever. It's just sheer dogged perseverance. And you did both Greek and Latin in college. Yeah. It was just donkey work. The, yeah. Initially, it's about, at least back when I was in school, it was about taking a piece of chalk and a chalkboard and writing things out until you could write them out without looking anymore. And then flashcards and drilling oneself with the flashcards. I thought it was helpful to make my own flashcards because in the process of writing it out. Well, yeah, exactly. It helps you memorize it. If you buy them, you haven't written them out. That's right. So you haven't made them your own. So, And then, uh, you know, you're working on it and eventually somebody says something in class or in a discussion and all of a sudden it becomes clear, oh, that's what a nominative does. Yeah. And that's what an accusative does. And that's what a dative does. And suddenly what seemed like a mystery begins to come clear. And once that begins oh, to yeah. happen, everything begins to open up. Let me give you a good example of this. So you're reading Mark, Mark 1, and you're reading about Jesus going into a synagogue of all places, which is kind of crazy, when he encounters a man with a demon. So here's a demoniac in the synagogue, which is just crazy. But he goes in there, and the way Mark puts it is... Not how we would put it. We put it, there was a demon in the man. But the way Mark puts it is, there was a man in a demon. <laughs> and I think that's analogous to being in Christ. Mm. The demon was this guy's Lord and realm. And the Lord Jesus is our realm and our Lord. We live in him through the spirit. And this is why demons have no control over us. We're out of their realm but that man was in the demon. You know, it's a little Greek thing that you're reading and you go, that's a different perspective than what I thought because we don't say it that way in English. And there are just hundreds of things like this. You're not changing Bible doctrine and reading this stuff like that. You're just getting insight into how things are put and a little different perspective sometimes. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 
888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So there really is value in learning the languages. And there was a time when a lot of pastors didn't know the languages. And then through the Renaissance and the Reformation, we recovered that. That became a really basic part of the way the Reformation looked at pastoral ministry, that all the pastors should you know, be able to read and write, which wasn't the case always before the Reformation, and that they should be able to read a Greek New Testament and read a Hebrew Old Testament and be able to make their sermons out of the original languages. And so we say in the Westminster Confession that the scriptures in the original languages are the final arbiter for disputes, because this is part of our doctrine of sola scriptura, that scripture is the unique final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. I was speaking at our seminary conference in January, and I was asked a question as a response to what I had presented in my talk, which surprised me a little bit, but probably should not have. And that was what I presented was the punctuation, even in our Greek New Testaments, is a layer added on by modern interpreters. So it's interpretive because our authors of the New Testament did not write with punctuation. They did other things to show you how to organize their material. This is part of why I'm writing on Hebrews, to show you the kind of things that they used in composition to show you the structure of what they're saying. But the question was, well, if that's true, then how can I trust my English Bible? And my response was, well, this isn't really a matter of orthodoxy or not. Our English Bibles, you know, our standard translations of the Bible into English, the standard ones now, are orthodox and they're not teaching false doctrine. But there's different perspectives and different nuances. And sometimes it's which doctrine is being taught here, <laughs> which is the real key. But also my response was, you should have a pastor who's an expert in the scripture and can tell you, you know, what's the proper interpretation of the text. You should be going to church every week for sermons that are based on the original text so that you are hearing the word of God being proclaimed because there's nothing worse in my mind for a pastor. Now, I'm not criticizing pastors, but if I were a pastor without Greek, it would be really terrible for me to say, well, I know your version says this, another version says that, and they're not the same. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> how do you choose between them if you don't have Greek or yeah. Hebrew? Or They're handicapped. I mean, we feel for the pastor yeah. who's in that circumstance. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we're here is to right. try to remedy that. Right. And sometimes we do have pastors who realize, hey, I'm not quite equipped to do the work I'm called to do. They come back they That's come true. to seminary. And one of our jobs is to try to persuade future pastors, no, this isn't some elite extra learning the languages. This is really basic to what you do. I think our students come now with that zeal and attitude. So I don't really have to persuade them of that. I think they want this. They see the value. And as we work together, I think they see the value more because I try to point it out to them. I'm not haranguing them, but I try to show them the benefits of this. And you said this earlier, it's a lifelong learning process because after three years of Greek in college, I didn't feel real comfortable with it. I felt more comfortable with Latin, so I was going to actually do your job. <laughs> teach church history. <laughs> you, you would have been great at it, but for my part, I'm glad you didn't, so that there was something for me to do. I was actually quite good at Latin at that time. Not at all anymore, but I felt more comfortable in it. Well, it didn't have the funny letters and the squiggles. And no, things. it wasn't that. It was <laughs> just because we weren't reading 
the same stuff or whatever. But what happened is the summer before I started seminary, so this was in the summer of 1982, and I started in the fall of 82. But that summer, we came down here to Escondido, and uh, I had a job as a night watchman, which allowed me to wander around the building and carry flashcards. So I carried Greek flashcards. But then during the day, when I wasn't sleeping, I uh, translated several Pauline books. And that really made a lot of difference. I just started working at it. And it was doing the sort of thing I tell students now. I mean, even if it's only one verse a day, you're making progress because it's a long-term thing. And at the end of that summer, I was very surprised at how my Greek had improved just from that work in the summer. It was only a couple of months. It really is use it or lose it. I mean, yeah. you, if, as yeah. you use it, you become more fluent and you begin to know what uh, an author is doing. And when I've traveled and I've had to use my European languages, it's always food. Right, that's mm-hmm. where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> my uh, my wife had a relative, um, great uncle, or grand great grandfather, or somebody who came over from Sweden, and the only English word he knew was banana. <laughs> and so for two, he ate a lot of bananas. He did for two weeks. <laughs> came to really dislike bananas. So it would be nice if we could connect learning Greek and Hebrew to food. Yeah, <laughs> but it is in a way we are in a way connecting it to this is the word of God. This is what feeds us, and we're feeding others with it. I think that's encouraging. I hope that's encouraging for the listener, especially if you're a future seminary student or if you're a pastor with a prospective student in your congregation or an elder or someone like this. Well, you started out in the early days of the seminary, and there aren't a lot of people on campus now who actually have a living memory of that experience. Most of our students weren't born when you and I started in seminary. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) Well, they remind me of that occasionally. Uh, I make references, and they look at me like, uh, Prof, we weren't alive. (laughs) So what was it like to be in the office building in San Marcos? Give us a feel for what that experience was, because it It was a much smaller school. How many students were we? I think we had around 25 students enter each class. So the first two might have been a little smaller. So there would have been, when I entered, you know, roughly 70 people. We had a few people leave right away. One fellow discovered we were Reformed. And when he discovered we were Calvinists, he said, oh, really? You guys are Calvinists? I'm out of here. (laughs) He didn't know. (laughs) Well, he enrolled as a student and then uh, discovered who we were. (laughs) Yeah, that happens occasionally. Not everyone can decode the word Westminster. Yeah, I guess. You might think it's a geographic place name or something. Anyway, I found it very exciting. You know, it was a new work and yet the heritage of Westminster Philadelphia was definitely, you know, and the educational quality and the seriousness for treating the scriptures was definitely promoted and carried on. About half of my professors had already been teaching at Westminster Philly, so they knew that. And then, uh, of course, we had others like Meredith Klein, who was a very experienced professor. And so, yeah, it was exciting. I don't think the uh, building was that important to us. It wasn't great. I mean, it was an office complex, but we didn't care. It was new, exciting, and yet we uh, we all worked very hard and grew close. So I still think of my seminary classmates very fondly. I met with one of them last fall when he was out for a conference, and I went down there and we had a wonderful lunch. And it was as if nothing had changed because we, you know, did so much together. And you know, you were a part of that too. So it's always fun to have you here. And We were about 75 students or so when I came in 1984. Okay. So yeah, 
Not much more. So I wasn't there in the office building. When I came in the fall of 84, we had just moved in January into this facility. So this is the only Westminster I've ever known. Right. But I've had the sense that there was a kind of camaraderie and intimacy in the very early days. All the professors were in a sort of a bullpen environment. So I've heard stories about the way they used to relate to one another. And I've gotten the sense that there was a certain closeness among the students, which I think still continues. That's kind of been a hallmark of our school. Well, I think the new living arrangement with the village has increased that, and I really think that has a lot of potential for lifelong friendships. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Could you have imagined in 1984, when you came over here to this campus, everything was surrounded by orange trees, more or less, right? So the the chapel building wasn't here. Well, they cut them all down just before that. Yeah, they to our been. north. Yeah. But there were still oranges over there. Oh, they were starting to build the houses that are there. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. Well, it had been orange groves, and there is still some on this property, but... They had cut them down. Part of how that all worked is I think the person who bought the original property also developed those homes to help pay for it because he was a big donor to the seminary and all that. Yeah. I don't know all the ins and outs of the finance. We were not told. Yeah, we just work here. I was so. a, well, and I was a student. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, yeah. wouldn't have been told that. But it's uh, now we have, you know, the chapel building, we have the classroom building, and then, of course, the village. So the whole thing, and there's a whole neighborhood. Well, the road coming up that connects to the seminary driveway, when I was a student, that was a stub. Yeah. Right? A lot of that didn't exist. And there were actually a lot more agriculture in the area yeah. than is now. So things have developed pretty Remarkably. Can I go back to, you know, the closeness of the student body? You know, I think that's true, but I had to work hard. I've always felt behind because of being an idiot and, (laughs) you know, starting my whole scholarly trek. Basically, when I was 23, when most people have already finished their bachelor's, that was my sophomore year. I was 23 that fall. And I've always felt behind, so I felt like I had to work harder than anybody else. Just time and put in the time just to catch up to basic educational level. Well, you did okay. Well, yeah, I still feel behind. So I'm going to finally start learning something after I I get some time together, scrape away some time to start studying. But at the same time, you will recall it. I, I hope you think of these as fondly as I do. We did make time and showed movies in our home every Friday evening. Oh, yeah. The old black and white movies with a projector on a sheet hung up on the wall. <laughs> ever the ever the cutting edge guy when it comes to technology. I saw my first VCR. Yeah. Steve used to go to the library and he rented. He came home one night with an orange plastic box, and in that was a mysterious machine called yeah. a VCR. Yeah. So that was cutting edge. That was cutting edge. No more sixteen millimeter. Yeah. The film, you know, projected onto a sheet. Yeah. I think you were the first person I knew to get interested in computers. Yeah. You learned to write code so that you could do Greek on computers way back when. Steve and I, I remember looking at a computer-related newspaper, and it had an ad in there for an external hard drive, and it, <laughs> it was 10 megabytes. Oh, man. What are you going to do with all that space? That's what we said. <laughs> yes. What would you do with 10 you megabytes? You don't need 10 megabytes. That's I mean, crazy. come on. <laughs> 
So the f- program you're listening to will be many more than 10 megabytes. Yeah, well. How amazing is that? So the world has changed so much. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is what you have learned. So the theme that's sort of emerged in our discussion today is that you started out a student, but you remain a student. You're always trying to learn. And that's what scholar means. It means student, literally. So you are a learner helping other people to learn. And it just happens that you and I get paid to help other people to come with us. Wade mekum, come with me. So how has your thinking developed, not to say it's fundamentally changed, but how has it developed since you began as a student and particularly since you began as a professor? Because I know that there are certain ways in which it's developed. And how has your work in the scriptures and particularly in the original languages pushed you in those ways? For example, your development of covenant theology. I know that you've given attention to that. I don't think that's fundamentally changed. I've just uh, deepened and feel like I understand it more richly. I think one area that I've thought about recently and want to continue thinking through is the interrelation of covenant and kingdom. I did write a couple of chapters in the popular Majesty on High book, but I think that's... uh Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to order? You can get that through the bookstore and uh, other good booksellers as well. Well, I wasn't trying to sell it. I just no, I it, am though. That's, it's it's that's a, my job. <laughs> it's an area of reformed theology that it's quite interesting. Some of our people have talked about covenant and kingdom being interrelated, but we haven't really worked on that. So I'd like to see that develop more. Whether I do it or not, I don't know. Or whether there's that much more to develop than the basics. I think there is some, and I'd like to see that go forward. I should tell you, though, that I think over the years I've discovered I'm not very good at systematic theology. So you have to learn as a scholar what you're good at, because you don't want to spend all your time on things you're not very good at unless you can fix that. And, you know, time always flees. But I'm pretty good in the technical minutia of Bible interpretation. So I told for our audience, I told Scott that I was very uncomfortable talking today on me because I don't really want to talk about myself. I want to talk about the Bible. I had to take him by the left ear and drag (laughs) him into the studio. (laughs) And I am only here reluctantly. So I'm not that interesting. But if I feel like I can understand passages. So, you know, I I love to look at the Bible and just meditate on it and think about it, rattle it around in my mind. But it takes a long time. I'm not a very quick thinker. I have to really put a lot of effort into it. But in the end of the day, those things are precious to me. It's my text now because I've owned it. I tell students who are going to be pastors, you know, you have to make these texts your own before you preach them. It's got to be yours. You've got to say, this is the word of God. I know this means that. Even if it's rather obvious and, you know, the translation brings it out fine, in the end of the day, you're not seeking novelty. You're seeking conviction and fidelity. And fidelity, exactly right. So my convictions on that haven't changed at all. I think I've just experienced it a little bit better. One area where you've grown, I know, is, for example, your appreciation of the role of the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. Yeah, I learned that from you. But you were pushed to it, I remember, by reading the New Testament. Yes. And there were passages that you were reading. And this is not something that you and I had learned much until we began to sort of learn it on our own. So as you're reading scripture, you began to realize, oh, hold on, there's something going on here, and this older Reformed idea might help me articulate what I'm seeing. But it was scripture that drove you. I think it's really important. In the end of the day, our salvation is rooted in God's 
oath in the Father swearing to the Son, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4. So there's one manifestation of that covenant in Scripture. And that gives you certainty and confidence before the Lord in the gospel that is the center of Reformed theology. Because the center of Reformed theology is the gospel. I've come to that conviction more and more over the years. I think our seminary has done a good job of emphasizing that to people. You know, you may hear about different things that are happening on campus. In the end of the day, though, what we think is important about the position we're defending is the gospel. It's Christ Jesus being central. And that's not a slogan. That, for us, is really what drives us, is we serve the Lord, and His glory and His gospel is what's all important. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.